This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott. Or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe. Every day at Saks.com. Everybody looks so great. When I look around this room, I can't help but wonder, is Ozempic right for me? Hi, I'm Rachel Hampton. And I'm Kate Lindsay, and you're listening to ICYMI. In case you missed it. Slate's podcast about internet culture. And today I'm joined once again by internet culture reporter Kate Lindsay. The last time she was on the show was way back in December 2021, a whole different era, uh, on an episode titled Nancy Reagan, Blowjob Queen. Shockingly, Kate did not actually talk about blowjobs in that episode, but she told us about her internet habits and her incredible newsletter about the internet embedded. Kate, hello. Welcome back. Hello. Thank you. Thank you for the kind words. Thank you for having me back. Um, Yeah, I'd say I don't think blowjobs are going to come up again this time, but you know, who, who knows what might happen. Um, <laughs> we might surprise ourselves. <laughs> Honestly, that's the theme of ICYMI. It's just continually surprising ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so last time you were on the show, there were some some differences, some changes. <laughs> you know, I had a co-host. Elon hadn't bought Twitter. I maybe had like a bit more hope for the future. But... <laughs> The most important difference for this part of the show, at least, is that I don't think we had actually started asking all of our guests what their first internet memory is. And I have to say, as a huge fan of your work, I'm really excited to hear what yours is. I'm trying to, I don't have like a clear cut first memory because I'm sure for school or for something like with my parents, I those were probably my first times on the internet. But in terms of like core memory that really defined my youth, I would have to say fanfiction.net. Um, I remember my friend, I think this was in sixth grade, it was like my first time over at her house. And she was like, I have to show you this this thing I do. <laughs> and she was like, she wrote this really intense, like 30 chapter fanfic. And I went home and I signed up that afternoon and was like, I'm going to do that too. <laughs> <laughs> Your life has been changed. Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. I mean, I have to know, what were your fandoms? What what fanfic was your friend writing? What were these 30 chapter fanfics about? <laughs> it was all Harry Potter. Of uh, that was, I think, how she and I bonded. Then um, she wrote like, a, hers was a really intense, like, James and Lily Marauders era fanfic. Mine was pretty basic. It was Harry Hermione, uh, the most boring couple, <laughs> but I was 12. So I just like saw the the main boy and the main girl, and I said they should kiss. Um, and that was basically <laughs> what I wrote. Um, and it's still there. I have every few years, I feel like I check to see if it's still accessible, and it is, but I just, I've never told anyone my username. <laughs> Kate, I need to know. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. That's, a, that's like, that's my big internet secret is people, like, there's nothing I want people to 
read less than my descriptions of like a makeout scene before I had ever kissed anyone myself. <laughs> wow. Well, I know what I'm going to be doing after this recording. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to assume that you've outgrown some of your, you know, basic fandom tendencies. Yes, unfortunately. I'm, <laughs> I would say fortunately. <laughs> I know. I just wish I had the passion for anything now as I did for writing Harry and Hermione fan fiction. <laughs> Listen, none of us have the passion that we had for our first fandom. That's just yes. fandom in and of itself. Yes. <laughs> I mean, kind of speaking of things that we've hopefully outgrown, but maybe, maybe not. I asked this question of our recent guest, Casey Johnson, but I also want to ask you because of the topic of today's show, which is going to be about dieting and weight loss and bodies. So if that is not something you want to listen to, I would recommend tuning out here. But if you're sticking around, Kate, I want to ask you, do you remember your first encounter with the health wellness internet space? Yes, and thankfully, it was later in my life than I think it is for a lot of people. Um, but it happened in a way that only upon reflecting, like now, am I like, oh, that's sinister. Because um, I was a big YouTube girly, first through Harry Potter, of course, but then I got very into just haul videos and, you know, the hair tutorials, makeup tutorials. I had people who I followed. And I remember. It was a summer, it was like early college, but it was over the summer and I was watching one of those haul videos and it was a recommended video like on the side of the feed uh, from a creator named Jen M who does not really make content like this. This is a decade old, but she had made a video about losing 10 pounds and I don't know what possessed me to click on it because it's not something, thankfully, that I had ever thought about that much, but I clicked and then she was like talking about this app that she used and I was like, oh, I'm going to use that app. And then that app led me to my fitness pal and I did my first ever diet kind of just for no reason. And that's what's so weird to look back. It's not like before that video I had been thinking about my weight. It was just like I literally just got influenced. It was very benign, but that's almost what makes it scarier to me is that like kind of for no reason I was like, all right, time to diet. <laughs> I mean, I feel like that's most people's first diet. It's either that or, you know, the Seventeen magazine of, mm -hmm. oh, I need a beach body, which is really just a body that is not yours, it seems like. Um, also, my fitness pal definitely triggered something deep within me because that was also, I think, my first my first yeah. interaction with the diet space. I downloaded it at the age of 11. Which... Oh, my God. How Like, I, I imagine that's... Like, I imagine they don't technically allow 11-year-olds. Oh, no, I lied. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was going to say, they can't allow that. Oh, I fully <laughs> lied to be able to access my fitness pal, which right. is deep, dark, and, you know, really... Well, you were 11, so at no point would your brain be like, hmm, this is already a red flag that I'm doing this, but now it's like, oh. I was like, ah, yes, I will now have a bikini body. My prepubescent body will now right. be available. <laughs> My body that's not even done yet. Yes. Yeah, not even done yet. And I already am like, enough of this. Yeah. I'm already like, it needs to go. It needs to change. Yeah. It's funny because I was recently reminded of this because of that Gwyneth Paltrow interview clip that's going around where she's describing what she eats in a day. What's your wellness routine look like now? I eat dinner early in the evening. I do a nice intermittent fast. I usually eat something about 12. Mm -hmm. um, and in the morning, I'll have some things that won't spike my blood sugar, right? So I, I have coffee, but I really like soup for lunch. 
Um, I have bone broth for lunch a lot of the days. Try to do one hour. Yes, of yes. This so is one of those videos where, thankfully, I've never been served the original video mm-hmm. because that would suggest my algorithm thinks something about me that I don't want it to. <laughs> but um, I've gotten it through stitches. I've gotten it through duets. I've seen it entirely through the lens of other people's reactions. Yeah, so this clip comes from the podcast, The Art of Being Well, which is hosted by Gwyneth's physician, Dr. Will Cole, who describes himself as a, quote, functional medical expert, which is all I will say about his qualifications. So since you've largely encountered this clip through other people's reaction to it, how would you describe the kind of tenor of the reaction to, you know, uh, bone broth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, people were really mad. Like, obviously, there was the usual just kind of like clowning on what she was saying, but there was a real level of anger that came with it that I don't think I'd seen before. And I, like, you know, I saw someone say this type of content should be illegal. The, the reaction was huge in, in a way that I think suggested a bit of exhaustion. Um, I think because by 2023, we've made a lot of progress in sort of the conversation surrounding body image and disordered eating. And so to get served a clip like that, it was like, have we learned nothing? Like, we're, we're still doing this conversation? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What's interesting about this clip and the backlash it inspired is that it comes at this really fascinating inflection point that we've been talking about. So at the same time that people are saying, really, we're still doing this, there's also this new class of drugs that causes significant weight loss that has come to dominate the headlines. Well, actually, let me say the class itself isn't new, but its current use for weight loss is. We are talking about Ozempic, or more specifically, GLP-1 receptor agonists. We will tell you exactly what GLP-1 is later in the show. (laughs) But suffice to say, the rise of Ozempic over the past few months has been pretty inescapable if you're on certain corners of the internet. During the Oscars red carpet, there was just constant speculation about who's seemingly evident weight loss was caused by it. There's been at least three different cut articles about it. Gia Tolentino's written about it for The New Yorker, which I don't know about you, but that's my personal barometer of when something's fully entered the mainstream. (laughs) Yes, yes. But something we were discussing as we were writing this episode is that it seems impossible or at least very dissonant that on one hand there's this mainstreaming and encouragement of extreme weight loss thanks to what some are calling a miracle drug and others are calling an injectable eating disorder and on the other hand there's this very evident frustration and anger at diet culture as represented by the reaction to Gwyneth Paltrow's what some are calling disordered eating. So what gives? (laughs) That's kind of what we're here to answer. After a short break, I'll be back with Kate to discuss what these two seemingly oppositional forces have in common and whether they spell the end of the body positivity movement as we know it. (laughs) 
Tired of not being able to get a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yes, you heard that right. You can talk to a human on the Discover customer service team anytime. So the next time you have a question about your credit card, call 1-800-DISCOVER to get the service you deserve. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At Sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda, whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch. Find inspiration for your new vibe every day at Saks.com. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. And we're back. Before we start breaking down what exactly glucagon-like peptide 1 is, I want to do a kind of brief little overview of the roots of body positivity before it became a corporate slogan. But before we do that, Kate, do you remember the first time you heard the phrase body positivity and what you thought it meant at the time? Yeah, it's funny because around the same time I was getting influenced to start dieting was probably around the same time I was introduced to the concept of body positivity, which is college. Um, we had a very active women's center. Uh, and I would I grew up in a very uh, not a high school that would have talked about food <laughs> and bodies in this way. Yeah, and so yeah. I have to imagine I think that's where those conversations came about. But I think it kind of speaks to how much that pressure from society really is always being forced upon bodies that I kind of learned about these two things at the same time, body positivity and and dieting. And my brain chose dieting. It went for literally the (laughs) least fun option. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, I totally understand. Not least because that choice that you're describing between body positivity and dieting is kind of a false one when you think about it. Especially when you think about where the roots of body positivity lie, which is basically just rebranded, watered-down fat acceptance. So the fat acceptance movement began around the late 60s and early 70s. And very importantly, I'm going to say this so many times throughout the show, it began not as this very individualist, you should feel good about your body, rah-rah shit that we've been subjected to for the past decade. It began as a recognition of the fact that fat people were and are treated in society as lesser than thin people. 
I'm going to say this again. The roots of this were not about individually finding ways to love yourself, but they were about collectively changing the society we live in to not be discriminatory against fat people. And importantly, there were some early successes. There were fat ends, like the sit-ins of the civil rights movement. There was the creation of the concept health at every size, which I feel like a lot of people have probably heard about at this point. But health at every size basically says that the actual markers of what we consider health, so your blood pressure, your cardiovascular health, your insulin resistance, your longevity, all of those will look different on everybody. There's no one way to look healthy. And that idea has been adopted by a lot of nutritionists. Then in 1993, workplace discrimination against fat people was made illegal. Again, notice how none of these games were about how we feel individually about our bodies. But importantly, there were some other things going on in the 90s in regards to bodies. So in the midst of all these strides towards fat acceptance, diet culture at the same time was booming. The 1980s saw the introduction of products like Lean Cuisine or diet sodas like Diet Coke and Crystal Light, as well as celebrity home workout videos from people like Richard Simmons and Jane Fonda. So by the 2000s, thin white bodies were the epitome of celebrity culture kind of all leading up to that famous or infamous Kate Moss quote, declaring that nothing tastes as good as skinny feels. That was in 2009. And one year later, Instagram was born. <laughs> a big, big moment. And it was <laughs> not only changed like the entire social media landscape, but it became yet another place to showcase and perpetuate these unrealistic beauty and body standards. But at the same time, it was also a huge platform for championing the body positivity movement. Creators like model Tess Holiday became figureheads. Uh, she created the account called F Your Beauty Standards. And there were also hashtags like hashtag body posi, hashtag body positivity, hashtag BOPO. Each of those, if you search them, they've accumulated millions of posts. I think one of the biggest changes that this era wrought was in the models that company used to advertise clothing. Yeah, I feel like that's how I really started to notice the body positivity movement making what felt like intelligible strides instead of just seeing it in inspirational Instagram posts. But simultaneously in the 2010s, we have the rise of the Kardashian <laughs> clan, a family that for some fucking reason... I've mentioned way too many times on this show over the past three months, I don't know what's in the water, but clearly it's Kardashian. It's also unfortunately impossible to really talk about body positivity and Instagram and just diet culture in the 2010s without mentioning how the Kardashians basically bought and spawn-conned and revenge-bodied their way into becoming the idealized female form that was built on the backs of black women, but you know, we don't have to, we're gonna get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Importantly, that form, the Kardashian form, was in most ways just as unattainable as the heroine chic of the 90s and early aughts, but because it had its roots in this kind of distilled form of blackness, it made it seem more accessible in a way. There was a body that Kim was trying to emulate and the body that Kim was trying to emulate felt on some level more attainable. 
big booty workouts and BBLs proliferated. We talked about this on the weightlifting episode with Casey Johnston. Curves, or at least a specific kind, were in. Though, as you know, cultural scribe Gia Tolentino notes in her recent piece on Ozempic, quote, even as the Kardashians ostentatiously displayed their curves, they sold flat tummy coat tees, laxatives, and waist trainers. So this embrace of a wider subset of bodies was always conditional. Right. And I think something that really underscores that is something that uh, Gia refers to in the piece, which is a Harvard study that found that implicit bias against fat people actually grew from 2007 to 2016, which are those same years that we're kind of talking about when the Kardashians rose to fame, when Instagram landed on the scene, when this movement was like kind of seemingly at its height. That implicit bias was growing. Um, when you compare that to other implicit biases like race, gender, sexual orientation, age, and disability, those all kind of decreased. And so it was just the bias against fat people that continued to grow, ironically, during this time when we were supposedly becoming more accepting of the movement. And so kind of these two movements uh, of thinness and of body positivity and fat acceptance have always existed in opposition to each other. But right now, it feels like the pendulum has kind of swung back and, and thin is winning. Yeah, that study was stunning to me. To have it spelled out like that, I feel like we talk about body positivity and the ways in which it just does not really measure up to what is required. But the hard data of that existing of just like, oh yeah, no, this is this love your body stuff, not only kind of did nothing, but also maybe made things worse. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's really interesting to me that these kinds of movements, this primacy of thinness and then the pushback against it kind of seem to resurge or evolve at the exact same time. There's an ebb and flow to it that at first glance seems dissonant, but it ultimately makes sense in that they're addressing the same thing, which is how our bodies are perceived and responded to in the world and what advantages and disadvantages that gives us. And I think we both agree that we're at another inflection point right now. Body positivity, or at least the commercialized version of it that companies can make money off of it by having, you know, plus size models on their website, seems to be ebbing. And flowing in is this, at first, unacknowledged return to thinness that a lot of us sort of implicitly noticed, but didn't know the cause of. Like when you think about early 2021. Think about the panic around the return of low-rise jeans, which low-rise jeans have never been about an item of clothing. It's been about the body. Think about the, quote, post-pandemic hot back summer body anxiety. Something has been in the air for a while. This kind of lingering anxiety that a backslide is oncoming. And you know what? She's here. And her name is Ozempic. She is here. Ozempic is a medication that's, you know, on paper used for the treatment of type 2 diabetes as well as obesity. Um, as we mentioned earlier, it's a GLP-1 receptor agonist, meaning it mimics that feeling of fullness that we get after we eat a meal without having to eat said meal. Um, I first started hearing about it in like blind items on TikTok and Dumois and all those places about celebrities hosting, quote, Ozempic parties where they would get together and take this drug. 
for the purposes of not treating their diabetes, but for losing weight. That contributed to a lot of speculation, not only about which celebrities were throwing these parties, going to these parties, taking the drug, but also influencers. Um, because there are creators like Remy Bader, who actually came forward during this discourse to, one, say that she had taken Ozempic, but also talk kind of candidly about her experience using the drug. Um, one of the things that comes along with the weight loss or other side effects like hair loss and something called ozempic face, which is actually just what happens when you lose weight very quickly. There's sagging skin kind of around the face. Um, and that, those are just some of the adverse effects that have been reported, not to mention uh, the fact that this was becoming this trendy recreational drug of course, was detrimental to the people who needed the drug for treatment for things like diabetes or, or chronic obesity. And now they were struggling to get it. Um, meanwhile, parties were happening where somehow celebrities had their hands on them. But overall, BuzzFeed reporter Kelsey Weekman um, has written a great piece about this where the Ozempic craze has just contributed, especially when it comes to sort of trying to guess who's on it, to another era of policing and critiquing and talking about other people's bodies in a way that I kind of thought we had squashed. <laughs> yes, I mentioned this during the opener, but there was this weird additional layer of surveillance taking place during the Oscars this year that I have not seen in what feels like a decade at the least. There were mm -hmm. all these kind of whispers of who's on Ozempic with I think Mindy Kaling receiving mm -hmm. the brunt of that speculation. And importantly, neither I or Kate are here to engage in that speculation, but simply to note that this all, this all being the Ozempic craze and the kind of body watching that it encourages really just feels like it's taking us back to the early aughts, which is a time period that permanently broke my brain. <laughs> Yeah, I think because people can kind of claim they're doing it under the guise of some kind of justice mm -hmm. by being like, oh, no, like, I'm calling people out for doing something bad. But, you know, as we're kind of diving into the environment around this is very complicated and your motivations for doing it are very complicated and not talking about people's bodies is not complicated. Don't do it. No, it's just like <laughs> policing individual people's bodies is never going to produce the result that we seem to want. But despite that, what feels like a very obvious fact, uh, in a lot of ways, it feels like we're right back where we, and by we, I mean you and I, those of us whose brain chemistry was altered forever by the fashion police. <laughs> it feels like we're back where we started, which maybe explains why so many people online are doing exactly what we're trying to do here, which is to disentangle why we're right back where we started. And some of them are tracing their relationships with food back to their childhoods under the control of so-called almond moms, which we will explain after a short break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. 
What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive of rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, y'all. Hope you're enjoying today's show. If this is your first time listening to ICYMI, then welcome. We're thrilled to have you here. In case you missed it, that's what ICYMI stands for. Also, our show comes out twice a week on Wednesdays and Saturdays. You're currently listening to the Saturday episode This past Wednesday's episode was a rerun. We looked back at a man who was selling bones on TikTok, which is apparently not quite legal. You don't want to miss it. And we're back with Almond Moms. Kate, did you have an Almond Mom? I did not have an Almond Mom. I had... A lesser talked about but equally significant thing, which is an <laughs> almond dad. Oh. Um, but the almond parent in general is just a catch-all term for, you know, when you would go home and you would be like, I'm hungry. And, you know, your parent would be like, all right, have an almond. Or have this equally disgusting thing that you don't want to eat because we don't have any snacks. Um It's kind of just a term for when you've been raised in an environment where food is a little bit tricky, it's a little bit policed or or limited. Um, And that reminds me of another phrase that I learned from TikTok, which is called an ingredient household, which is something I also identify with. It basically just (laughs) means uh, your pantry, your fridge just has the ingredients for the food that you're cooking that week, as in like no fun snacks, nothing that anyone picked up because it looked tasty, just the bare bones of what you need. And this was a realization in two ways. One, that I had grown up in an ingredient household. And two, that I currently am maintaining an ingredient household. Okay, Um, no! I know, there are no (laughs) snacks in my fridge right now. Um, But I just think, for me, my ingredient household is brought about by the fact that I hate grocery shopping in New York City. It's Mm. not fun. And the more items you get, the more you have to carry home. So it has really discouraged sort of the fun picking up snacks. And also, you know, you're always like going somewhere. I feel like whenever I'm at the grocery store, I just don't want to be there. I get in, I get the list, I get out. But that does mean like right now, I'd love a little snack and I do not have one. (laughs) I feel like in the same way that I've seen a lot of people who have ADHD or autism kind of come to realize that their parents also maybe Mm. have undiagnosed ADHD or autism is really similar to how a lot of us, most of us who have complicated feelings around food and weight are realizing that our parents also have deeply repressed feelings about food and weight, which is freeing on one hand because it's not my fault, but also it means the problems are longstanding. And I think on the even kind of sadder level, it just demonstrates to me at least the opportunities that were lost when fat acceptance became body positivity and body positivity became capital B, capital P, body positivity TM. All of this 
it feels like it's trying to individual solution our way out of a structural problem, which is discrimination and bias against fat people. Right. And I think all of this shared trauma around almond moms and ingredient households is why people had such a visceral reaction to that Gwyneth Paltrow podcast clip. A reaction that was so strong, by the way, that Gwyneth Jade Egg Paltrow actually <laughs> responded to it on her Instagram stories, which is so crazy. Like, of all the things that Goop has promoted, that th- this is the thing that she says something about. <laughs> It, yeah, when you think about the things that are on that website, you're just like, oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And her response is interesting, 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 <laughs> is I guess what I'll say. Okay, so let's jump into this. So I think it's important for everybody to know that I was doing a podcast with my doctor. So this is a person that I've been working with for over two years now um, to deal with some chronic stuff. And I have long COVID, so I have been, and the way it manifests for me is very high levels of inflammation over time. So I've been working with Dr. Cole to really focus on foods. Um, What I'll also say is that as a girly with IBS, I'm super skeptical of people Mm -hmm. who talk about, quote, low inflammation diets. But I also don't really like hyperanalyzing individual people's dietary choices. So what I will end on is that it's honestly wild to me that the backlash was so strong that, yeah, Gwyneth Jade Egg Paltrow (laughs) felt she needed to respond to it. Like, the tensions are high right now. They're so high, and I do wonder if that is because people are already in this heightened headspace, thanks to the Ozempic discourse that's already swirling. Okay, Kate, I have a hot take. I want to hear it. I kind of find some of, not all, some of the Ozempic discourse and Gwyneth's opening up about her bone broth diet kind of refreshing. Mm. In the early aughts, I feel like all these rail-thin celebrities would lie and say they ate pizza and burgers and rarely worked out, but somehow they were still a size zero. But at least now it seems like people are admitting the lengths to which they go to get and stay thin. You know what I mean? It's so true, and unfortunately the first thing I thought of when you said that is that Bella Hadid clip where they're like what's a snack that you love and she's like oh I eat pizza uh every day and it's like what <laughs> this is very Lucille Bluth what does a banana cost ten dollars exactly. like it's just like this this person is guessing how much us normal people eat pizza <laughs> and she thinks it's every day no exactly exactly and that's why I think Gwyneth being like I wake up and I have a cup of coffee, and then six hours later I have some bone broth, and then I end on some celery, it feels like people are finally saying the quiet part out loud rather than outright lying or hiding a behind language around not wanting to be bloated or whatever. And the quiet part is that for a lot of people, none of this was ever about health. Like, that is the secret to all of this. And just because we haven't said it yet, or maybe just haven't said it enough, or it can never be said enough, being fat does not automatically make you unhealthy. In fact, if we are operating off of the standard measure of BMI, which to be clear, we never should, it's outdated races and sexes. But if like most doctors were operating off of BMI, most studies show that people who are considered overweight, according to BMI, 
have the lowest mortality risk of any other group. But most of the mainstream weight health discourse is not actually about feeling, quote, good in your body, despite what people say. It is and was about thinness at any cost because the alternative is fatness and we all see how society treats fat people. That is the only explanation that would make any of this make sense. The only world in which an otherwise healthy adult thinks that voluntarily having the diet of a toddler or having to remind themselves to drink water or shitting their guts out, which are all side effects of a Zimpic, is a good choice, is a world in which the disease is fatness. Right, right. And now that we're saying the quiet part out loud, we can admit that the real problem is not how we feel about our bodies as individuals, but how society as a whole perceives bodies and the privileges and the discrimination people receive as a result of that. Which brings us to the latest movement, body neutrality. The term body neutrality was coined by body image coach Anne Poirier in 2016, and she referred to it as, quote, a resting place from the chaos of your mind, which is to say you shouldn't hate your body, but you also don't have to aggressively love it either. I know speaking from personal experience and getting into my own body image, the expectation that I had to really love it always felt unattainable. I was never getting there. Um, I'd rather just not think about my body, which is more so what body neutrality is about. Um, that also is a little bit related to some of the criticisms it gets. Like, it's kind of impossible not to think about your body. Completely detaching from your body ignores the role it plays in how other people treat you, how you feel about yourself. And so I think the answer is more that we have to kind of carve out our own relationships with our bodies and it's up to us to decide what works. There's no one-size-fits-all solution. Mm-hmm. I, I really love the concept of body neutrality because it basically tells us to feel the way we feel about everything else in life, but about our bodies. Is there really anything in the world that we unequivocally love? There, Most of the time, we feel <laughs> some form of neutral towards something in the world at some point in our life. It is... Mm-hmm. Ridiculous to expect to love your body every single moment of every single day. But I personally think part of the reason there's no one-size-fits-all solution is because the solution isn't going to come from within, which is what a lot of this discourse and movements and Ozempic is honestly about. We're not going to reach this kind of enlightened state about our bodies or Ozempic, our way to thinness. And even if we did, it wouldn't solve the problem. Not least because Ozempic, like most weight loss solutions, isn't a permanent one. Most people who stop taking the drug gain that weight back within a year. But to just be so extremely blunt, it doesn't actually matter how I feel about my body in the grand scheme of things. Like, obviously it affects my life and my mental health. But even if I woke up every day thinking I was the hottest shit walking, it wouldn't stop a doctor from looking at my BMI and deciding that I didn't deserve actual care until I lost what is a frankly unhealthy amount of weight. Which brings me back to Gia's piece which the headline for the piece is, will Ozempic change how we feel about being fat and being thin? And I think the answer to that question is ultimately no, because Ozempic is an individual solution to a structural problem. I'm never going to judge anybody who takes it for weight loss because what that person has done is looked at the way that fat people are treated in society, saw how terrible it is, and thought, there is a solution to this for me 
at least. And I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna judge anyone for doing that. But that person's individual choice is one made within a larger context that is still shitty. Mm-hmm. Like, it still sucks. What is actually required is a massive societal shift in the ways that we think about fatness and bodies and Ozempic and body positivity and everything else that's happened over the t- last 20 years is not going to address that. Yeah, it's just, I feel the same way. It's why I got such an, an ick from the discourse around the Oscars and e- around anyone who we look at their body and decide that we know more about it than than they're telling us. Um, it, it's because we're all under the same umbrella of pressure about how we're supposed to look and, and also these weird judgments about the right way to go about looking. And, and all Ozempic has really taught is that you can't, win like even if you do take it and get thinner there's going to be judgment on how you decide to do that because we're all coping in ways that are less healthy and even unhealthier (laughs) to try to fit this impossible standard when when really the answer is something much larger and out of our control which is why we turn to those little things that we can control like ozempic All right, that is the show. We'll be back in your feeds on Wednesday, so please subscribe. It is the best place to never miss an episode. Please leave a rating and review in Apple or Spotify and tell your friends about us. You can follow us on Twitter at ICYMI underscore pod, which is also where you can DM us your questions like, why is everyone talking about Ozempic? And you can also always drop us a note at ICYMI at slate.com. ICYMI is produced by Daniel Schrader and Rachel Hampton, with a special thanks to Sierra Spragley-Ricks and Tori Dominguez. Daisy Rosario is our senior supervising producer, and Alicia Montgomery is Slate's VP of Audio. See you online. Or at an Olympic party.